James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. It says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that what, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, as I said, tonight wraps up our study in the book of James. And this section of scripture, the very end of the book of James, has been debated a lot and has been used by many to teach about physical healing. And even many have used it as a proof text for the Roman Catholic doctrine of last rites. There's actually a lot of different things that people try to pull out of this passage. And although there may be a small possibility or amount of a possibility of this passage talking about physical healing, I actually have come to believe that this, the, full, the full context of this letter will show what the interpretation really should be. I believe God heals and that the Bible talks about that and prayer for healing. I got no problem if you want to go to the elders of your church and have them pray for you to be healed. And even if they want to anoint you with oil, I'm not against any of that. But listen closely. I want to take the time tonight to show you from the full context of this letter and the context of this section. I think James is talking about something a little bit different than physical healing here. And because of a translation issue, we might have missed what's really going on. And I can't wait to take you there. The context will help us get the proper meaning. For example, I beat my wife. Now, I have permission to share this illustration from Becky. You hear me say the words, I beat my wife, and out of context, you can jump to a bunch of conclusions. But if in the full context, I said, my wife and I love to go on cruises, and we love to play cribbage, and usually I beat my wife, the context changes the I beat my wife. Do you understand what I'm saying? And in the same way, I think the best way to interpret these words and what are said here is to look at the full context of what James was saying. Now, in order to do that, we have to go back to the beginning. Go back to James chapter 1 and look at verses 1 through 12. Let me remind you, James was writing to a group of predominantly Jewish Christians to encourage them as they were suffering because of their faith in Jesus. James chapter 1, again, look at verses 1 through 12, just as a reminder. James, a servant of God and of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now stop, put a finger here in James 1, and go with me to Acts chapter 8. Just to remind you of what this dispersion is. In Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, Stephen has just been stoned and put to death, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered or dispersed, if you will, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them 
to prison. So James is writing to these believers who have been scattered because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 2, count it all joy. James chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So as we see at the beginning of his letter, he immediately is writing to the Jewish Christians who have been dispersed and scattered because of their faith. They're undergoing beatings, imprisonment. Some are being put to death. And he's saying, keep your eyes on the Lord. Oh, and by the way, this will also be a real test of whether or not you're truly saved. Throughout the letter, if you remember, that's what we've been noticing James has been doing, encouraging the believers to hold on, yet at the same time saying, if you're truly saved, this is what you're going to look like, and this is not what you're going to look like if you aren't. And the rich are an example of how we're not to look and those types of things. And so he's been take, talking to them about the need to double check that their salvation is real and to avoid worldliness in their struggle. Let me remind you a couple of those real quick. Look at verses 22 through 26. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now, if anyone thinks he's religious, and he doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Jump over to chapter 2. Look at verses 14 through 18, and then again verse 26. Chapter 2, 14 through 18. What good is it, brother, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but doesn't have works? Can that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Jump to verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So again, keeping in mind the context of this letter, he's writing to Christians who are suffering and he's saying, hang on, trials are actually a good thing. God will use them to increase our faith, improve our salvation. God will also weed out those who are saved and those who aren't through these trials because those who are the thorny soil or the rocky soil conversions are the ones who are in time are going to fall away when they go through these trials. Go to James chapter 3, look at verses 10 through 18. He says, From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Keep going to verse 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? 
By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there'll be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable and gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Again, as you remember from our study, James has been going into great detail to say to them, look, there should be a noticeable difference between those of us who are saved and those of us who aren't. And we shouldn't be looking like the rest of the world in the midst of our struggles. Don't start acting like the world does. And then he even goes further in chapter 4. Look at verses 4 through 10. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Oh, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, I don't know if I can need to take any more time to kind of illustrate this, but the context of this letter has been very, very clear. You're going through trouble. You're going through trials. God's going to use this for his winnowing purposes. He's going to use this to make you stronger, but he's also using this as an opportunity for you all to double check to make sure which side you're on. Now that is going to be important for us as we move into our last closing part of this letter. If you've ever noticed when people write letters, especially in the Bible, we'll see that they had a context and why they were writing the letter written at the beginning. And then at the end, they kind of sum it all up. When we get to this section that we're going to look at tonight at the close of our study of James verses 13 through 20, you're going to notice that if you look at the full context and read James 5, 13 through 20 in the full context of the letter and itself, he's not talking about physical healing. He's talking about spiritual sickness. And we're going to talk, see that in just a second. In the verses just prior to what we're looking at tonight, he's been talking about being patient in what? Trials. But look, look at verses 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brother, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, as an example of what? Suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we considered those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So I want you to see that he's talking about suffering in the context, being patient in suffering. Now, what does he say in verse 13? Is any of one among you what? Suffering. Look at the context of what's going on here. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start breaking down chapter 5, verses 13 through 20 in the context. James says, if anyone is suffering, let him pray. Now, we're going to deal more with that later on in our study tonight. But he then goes on and he says, are you cheerful in the trial, pretty much? Any of you cheerful? Let him sing praise. Does that remind you 
of anything that happened to someone that was suffering in the book of Acts? Paul and Silas, go to Acts chapter 16. Go to Acts 16, look at verses 16 through 25. Acts 16, verses 16 through 25. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants, men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So here we see that Paul and Silas, in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their trial, had a faith that was so strong, they were actually cheerful in the midst of it. And so not only did they pray in their suffering, they also sang praises to God. Then James says next in chapter 5, If any among you sick... Now we're going to deal with this word sick. Because I think the word sick is what's been throwing us off. I actually wrote a little note in my Bible here. Is any among you weak instead of sick? And I'll explain to you why, and looking at the Greek, why we're going to do this. The, it says, if anyone is weak, let him call for the elders of the church to come pray for them. Now, this word translated sick is the Greek word astheneo. And it's used in the New Testament to refer to physical weakness. It is used that way. But it is also used to refer to spiritual weakness as well, just as many times. So I want to take you and show you a few of these in the New Testament. And we're going to wrap up with one that will honestly, hopefully, go right into the context of where we are. And so go to Acts chapter 20, verses 32 through 35. Acts chapter 20, verses 32 through 35. Paul says to the uh, Ephesian elders, he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or a parable, apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the what? The weak. By the way, that's astheneo. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it's more blessed to give than to receive. So here we see the word translated weak in Acts 20, verses 32 through 35. Go over to Romans chapter 4. Look at verses 18 through 21. In Romans 4, 18 through 21, the scripture says this. It says, in hope, this is Abraham, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations... As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. 
He did not weaken, there's that word again, in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. All right, so here we see, again, Asenao used to talk about spiritual weakness, weak in faith. Struggling a little bit, emotionally, if you will. Go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, look at verse 3. It says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemns sin in the flesh. There it again. Astheneo used to talk about spiritual weakness. Not physical weakness. All right. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Look at verses 11 and 12. In 1 Corinthians 8, 11 and 12, it says, And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is what? Weak, you sin against Christ. Now, if you know in the context of when we looked at this, comparing it with Romans 14, talks about the brother who is strong and the brother who is weak. And it talks about those who are strong in their faith and their understanding of the word of God. There are some who are a little bit weaker that way. And we're not to look down on them and to judge them because God's going to get us all where he wants us to be in his way. But the word is translated many times in the New Testament weak. And I think in the full context, if in James 5, 13 through 20, if, if it had said, is any among you weak? I think it would have helped us a lot. I think a lot of the confusion that has come out of this passage probably would have disappeared. But let me give you one more. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and look at one verse, verse 10. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10. Paul's just talked about his suffering, his struggle, his thorn in the flesh, how he prayed for God to remove it. And he talked in into verse 9 how he would boast all, all the more gladly of his weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He says, for the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardship, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Now, this could be physical. It could be spiritual. But the whole idea is simply this. When I admit my need. I get more of God's power. And that's what I think James is talking about here as he's wrapping up his letter to them about suffering in their trials and persevering under trials and the fact that some are going to respond well and others are not going to respond well. He says, Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful in the midst of it? Let him sing praise. If anyone among you weak, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And look at the context here. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and, or weak, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Now, I do believe that the Bible teaches that sometimes physical sickness and illness and sometimes death does come to us because of disobedience. The Bible talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that because some were taking the Lord's Supper incorrectly, some were sick and some were dead. But at the same time, not all physical sickness is tied to sin. We hopefully understand that, even though there are some that try to teach that. That's not what the Bible teaches at all, because that goes against the whole of Scripture. But at the same time, 
Sometimes God uses trials to show us where we really are faith-wise, whether we're strong or weak. And sometimes in our weakness in the trial, we might even fall into sin, which might even be a lack of faith, a doubting, a worry, these types of things that the Bible talks about. But look at how Paul used Astheneo in 2 Corinthians 12.10 to refer to weakness due to suffering because of hardships and persecution. So, if someone is struggling in their faith, they need the mature spiritual leaders in the church to come and to pray for them and to strengthen them in God. And by the way, this matches up with the whole of Scripture. We need stronger brothers and sisters to come alongside of us when we're weak, when we're going through a trial. That's something we really, really need. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Look at verses 12 through 21. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint hearted. Help who? The weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what's good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, what? Pray for us. Here in this context, he talks about the fact that there's going to be those who are in the church who are over us and have the responsibility of being spiritual leaders, elders in the church, the pastors, the spiritual authorities in our church. And they're supposed to be the mature men in the church. And we're to be seeking them to give us direction, encouragement and guidance through the word and through prayer. That's why when in Acts chapter 6, when the, they had a dispute between the Hebraic widows and the Grecian widows about the daily distribution of the food, the elders were wise enough to say, look, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of word and prayer to go wait on tables. You choose some men who are full of the spirit and wisdom. We'll hand this responsibility over to them. They'll make sure that that's being taken care of because that's important too. But we'll devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And those of us who have been given this responsibility are supposed to feed the flock and pray for the flock and care for the flock. But how we do it is by pointing you back to who? To Jesus and his word. That's what Paul did in Acts chapter 20, when the section we just read, verses 28 and following. He actually said this. He says, I know that after I leave, uh, savage wolves are going to come in and they're not even going to spare the flock. But I commit you to God and his word which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance. Yes, sir, go ahead. James 5.15 says the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Mm -hmm. That word sick is chemno, and it's found as a reference of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, mm -hmm. which is exactly what you're talking right. about. Right. Talk, Hebrews 12, 3, it talks about the, the struggle against sin. Yeah. And, that's what, and that's why in the context it's talking about that respond well to the trial. Yeah, Yes, exactly. It, it, but in that Hebrews 12 passage, it's talking about laying aside the sin and the things that easily entangle us. Exactly. Exactly. 
it's not physical sickness. This is a weariness of, I want an honest toe of hands, and this will do us all good. And I'm going to join in with you. Anybody here getting a little weary as we wait for the return of Jesus Christ? Yes. There are some days that we're like, Lord, all right, you haven't come yet, but I'm going to trust you. Remember last week's lesson, be patient until the coming of the Lord and don't take it out on each other. Remember that? We all get that way and we need each other. Oh, Galatians 6.1, do you see a brother caught in a transgression? You who are spiritual, restore them gently. Oh, by the way, restoring them gently is not saying you shouldn't be doing that. Restoring them gently is that's really not the best thing for you. That's how the Holy Spirit convicts us. He doesn't say, boy, you're doing really bad right now. He'll say, that's not what I saved you for. I've saved you for so much more. Why are you eating hot dogs when you could have a steak? You understand? He does it in a way of encouragement. I, I've used this a lot in my preaching. I'm going to use it again tonight. Let me give you one of the best examples of this. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 23. 1 Samuel 23, look at verses 15 through 18. David has been running from Saul. He's already been anointed king. It's been a long time since he was anointed king. He's fought Goliath. He's had to go back to the, the sheepfold. He's been running from Saul, and he's now hiding. In 1 Samuel 23, starting in verse 15, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. In other words, what he's saying is, is you'll be the king, not me. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Could Jonathan come and get him out of his trial? No. He couldn't say, hey, look, I'll go have a word with my dad. I'll, I'll take care of it. By the way, he'd already tried that and almost got speared himself. All he could do was say, dude, I'm really sorry that you're out here in the rocks and the caves. But all I can do for you right now is to encourage you that God is who he is and he's made a promise and what he said he will accomplish and I want to encourage you with that. And I come out of my way to come tell you this, to let you know. He knows where you are, and I want to bless you in this way. And then Jonathan went back to the palace. And David had to say, go ahead, Jeff. The the well, the oil's coming up. The oil's coming up. So hang on for a little bit on the oil. All right? Then we're going to head to that next anyway. The word anoint is not used for ceremonial anointing. Actually, it's for practical purposes. The word that's translated anoint is actually used for practical purposes, usually tied to rubbing oil on wounds. Remember, a lot of these people have been persecuted for their faith. And what had happened to them in that persecution? Some were being beaten. Some were being imprisoned. We already saw that with Paul and Silas. And so the rubbing oil has a practical purpose, usually tied to rubbing oil on wounds. And a more literal translation, actually, of the way the Greek is written would be, after having rubbed them with oil, let them elders pray for them. In other words, there's a physical component of meeting their, their needs, but there's also the spiritual. After having rubbed them with oil, in other words, don't just say, well, we'll pray for your brother. No, if they've got some physical wounds tied to their persecution, let's meet those as well and let's pray for them. 
Let me show you a couple examples of this word anoint, not used for ceremonial, but it's more of a uh, sprucing up in a little bit. And then I'll show you a couple others that are used another way. Go to Matthew 6. Matthew 6, verses 16 through 18. By the way, I want to encourage some of you to avoid a temptation of the enemy right now as we get into this any deeper. Because some of you that are here and some of you that are watching online are suffering. And the temptation for you is to sit here and to get more and more sour. Because you'll say, well, nobody's come to encourage me. Well, my pastor never even checks on me. Well, I have a brother and sister in Christ say they love me, but they never even come to my house to see how I was doing. They knew I was sick and nobody came by to see me. Oh, let me, let me say something to you. The Lord is your shepherd. You shall not want. He's the one that's going to encourage you first and foremost. If you look to man first, you got it backwards. If man comes and says, I'm here for you, they've got it backwards. Our job is to encourage you and to bring you back to a right understanding of who God is. Paul, at the end of his life, said, at my first defense, nobody came and stood by me. They all deserted me. May it not be held against them. Why? Because the Lord was with me. And he's the one that took care of me, and he'll always be. So if you listen to this lesson tonight, and you go down that poor me road of, well, nobody comes and encourages me, you've already taken your eyes off of the Lord and put them on man. Don't go there. All right? Now, also at the same time, if the Lord brings to our minds some people that he might want us to send a text to, or a phone call, or even a visit. when I've learned over the years, when God brings someone to my mind out of the blue, Usually, it's he wants me to pray for them, and if it won't go away, he then wants me to contact them in some way. And I want to encourage you to do the same thing, but don't play the, well, nobody checks on me card. Uh, no, we're to be going to take care of, bless others, not sitting around waiting for them to take care of us. There's too many victims in the church. In Matthew 6, verses 16 through 18, look at what it says. It says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This anoint isn't anything ceremonial, it's just simply wash up. You know, spruce yourself up a little bit, make yourself feel a little better. Splash a little water on your face. Put a little oil in your hair so you smell a little bit better. And when you go out into the public, you don't have to say, woe is me, poor me, I'm fasting, I'm I spiritual. That's what the word anoint means. Here, go look again now at Luke 7. Look at verses 44 through 46. Same type of an understanding. In Luke 7, 44 through 46... Then turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water from my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. So in other words, again, when a visitor came in, you kind of gave them a little sprucing up when they came into your house. They've been on a journey. Here, let me wash your feet. Let me give you a little oil and a little smell and smell nice, you know. You know, <laughs> my wife used to keep uh, some deodorant in our van for some teenage boys that she always rode in our van. She, they'd come in and she'd anoint them and say, hey, well, anoint yourself. Here's your deodorant. Put it on, guys. But she did it to spruce them up a little bit and also for her sake as well. 
But it's the same kind of idea. It's not hard to imagine that some believers, having been beaten for their faith, needed an anointing with oil along with prayers for strength. Go to Luke 10. Look at verses 30 through 34. In Luke 10, 30 through 34, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Again, it was a physical taking care of the physical needs that happened. One more. That passage, we were back in Acts chapter 16. We, we left off. Let's look at what happens next. In Acts 16, verse 25. Remember, they've been beaten and put in the inner cell, but they were praising God and singing praises and hymns and praying. And in chapter 16, verse 25 through 34, look at what happens next. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in the house. And he took them that same hour of the night and he washed their wounds. And he was, he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. You see, tied to the spiritually praying for each other who are going through times of struggle and weakness and faith, there are sometimes there are some physical needs that need to be met. Why? Because sometimes God has to do something physical in our lives to get our attention about spiritual stuff. Not always are they tied together, but sometimes God will, well, like the prodigal son. God let him in the story, go, spend the money, have the fun you think is fun. But once you go play with Satan, you're going to find out he's not as much fun as you thought he was. And he came to the end of himself. And there was a physical need that was met as well as the spiritual. We have a tendency to focus on one and not the other. We should understand how to understand both. So, let's go back to James 5. Anyone among you suffering? Remember, we've been told in the study from last week to learn from the prophets. The steadfastness of Job is an example of suffering and patience. And then among you suffering, let him pray. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing praise. And among you weak, let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith will save the one who's weak. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. 
The rest of the context of this section in James' letter add to this interpretation of these verses. Because James says this type of prayer will save some and deal with sins. They'll be forgiven. It seems very clear in these verses that the healing being referred to here is a spiritual healing. Now, again, I'm not against anybody that wants to go have the leaders of the church pray for them. You've been to the doctors, they don't know what to do, and you want the elders to come pray for God to heal. I got no problem with that. You want them to put oil on you because that makes you feel better? That's great. I got no problem with that. But there's no power in the oil or anything like that. This is a practical word. But the issue that's really going on here is strengthening each other spiritually in these last days to hang on. And that's why we need to stick together. That's why we need each other. I've, in my travels, run into a lot of people over the years that claim to be followers of Jesus, but they're not following very closely. And I'll be on a golf course and, and they'll find out who I am and what I do and they'll say, oh, I'm a Christian too. And I said, oh, cool, where do you go to church? What, what, what group do you fellowship with? And the, inevitably I get this, well, I, I don't really go anywhere. I haven't gone for a little while. I know I need to, but, you know, or others will say, you don't have to go to church to be close to God and all this. And I just say to them this, I said, listen closely. I said, if you take a fire and it's made up of a bunch of sticks, it'll be roaring. But if I take one of those sticks and pull them out and put it by itself, what's going to happen to that stick? It's going to fizzle. It's going to get weak. And I said, that's why God designed us to be together so that we can help each other. That's why marriages should be that way. There are times that Becky has many times when I'm struggling in faith a little bit or doubting or worrying where she'll say, quoting some guy named Johnson and say, I remember a preacher who used to say this. I'm like, oh yeah. But there are some times that she'll get weak in faith and I'll say, hey, remember? And she'll say, that's what I get for being married to a preacher. But at the same time, we are to encourage each other and we're to strengthen each other and reminding each other of who God is and what he said. Go, go to Isaiah chapter 1. Look at verses 2 through 6. Isaiah chapter 1 verses 2 through 6. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head there is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Is he talking about spiritual sickness or physical sickness? Yes. They're combined here because of sin. Oh, by the way, go back to James 5 real quick. Lord just brought something to my mind that I haven't even really noticed in all my study. But as I've been kind of preaching and talking to him while I'm talking to you, he showed me something. If anyone, is anyone, verse 14, among you weak right now? You've fallen into sin. You've kind of gone by the wayside a little bit because of your struggles. 
Let them wait until the elders call them and check on them. Is that what it says? What does it actually say? Let them call the elders. Let those who are humble enough to say, I need prayer. I'm away. I'm struggling in faith. This shows even more what I felt like God wanted me to say to you. Don't sit around waiting for somebody to come check on you. The father in the prodigal son story, which is God, was sitting on the porch waiting for the prodigal to come back. But he waited until the prodigal humbled himself and came back to the father. You, if you're in this place and you're listening now and you have not done too well in this race and you've gotten trapped in sin and your life's a little bit of a mess right now because of it, you need to humble yourself, go to the Lord, but also go to a church, get involved, get plugged in, go to some people that you respect who walk with the Lord and say, I need prayer and I need fellowship and I'm ready to come home. Don't go for prayer for a magic so I can feel better and go back to doing what I'm doing. God knows the heart and he responds to the prayer of the humble. Go to 1 Peter 2. Look at verses 18 through 25. Again, you'll see this by his stripes we are healed is talking spiritual healing, not physical. 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And to this you've been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Do you see it? It's a spiritual. Yes, I did weaken. Yes, I am fearful. Yes, I am doubting. Yes, I am falling prey to the temptations of the world, but I know better. And I, I want to come back. And if you weak right now in the suffering of being a Christian in this world, humble yourself and go find some place that you can get with some people who can pray for you. But not just pray for you, but know you well enough that they can come alongside you and help you walk with the Lord. But this also lines up with how James ends the letter. As well as many other times in the letter, he spoke to them about real salvation and faith versus phony faith. Go to, go to um, Jude 17 real quick. Let me show you a couple of things. In the end of, go to James real quick. I'll read the very end. He says in verse 19, James chapter 5. I'm sorry, my brain's going in 100 different directions because I'm realizing we got... 15 minutes left, and I've got to finish the book of James. So James chapter 5, verse 19 and following. Brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Again, are we talking physical illness or are we talking spiritual? We're talking spiritual. But now go to Jude. Look at verses 17 through 23. 
Jude 17 through 23. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time, there'll be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now forever and forever. Amen. Again, the same thing. In these days when there's false teachers and people falling astray, help each other. Help each other. Go to Hebrews 10. I've been wanting to quote this all night, but I had to wait because I know we were going to come to it. Hebrews 10, 26 through 39. Hebrews 10, 26 through 39. He says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he is sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. In this passage, the Hebrew writer is saying, look, some of you are going to just say you believe and walk away. And when you know the truth and you deliberately keep on sinning after receiving a knowledge of the truth, guess what? There's no other opportunity for salvation. That's the only salvation there is. And if you walk away from that, there's judgment coming for you. But then he says, because he doesn't know who's who, he just knows in the audience there are going to be some that are and some that aren't, just like James was. He said, but those of us who are saved, truly saved, we have need of endurance. Because in time, he's going to come and he's not going to delay. But we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. How are you responding to the struggle how are you responding to the trial of being a Christian in these last days? Are you cheerful? Praise the Lord. And hopefully someone will hear you singing. Are you weak? Acknowledge that and humble yourself and go ask for prayer. Get plugged in with a body of believers. Go to Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need each other, folks. We need each other. I'll be honest with you. One of the sad things about us not meeting again until September is going to be this fellowship that's going to be lost for a few months. But that doesn't mean you all can't stay in contact with each other. We got Facebook, cell phones, and email. and You even have cars, some of you, I think. But one of the things I love about getting here on Tuesdays is watching the buzz in the room as people all come in. And you all go to different churches. Isn't that crazy? It's not about what church you go to as much as it's getting plugged in with a group of believers that can encourage you in these days. And we need it. And we need it all the more. We need it all the more. Go back to chapter 5 of James there's a section I skipped over, and we have time to tie it in at the end of our study tonight. I don't think it's any accident that James, in these verses, as he talks about the power of righteous prayers, uses the illustration of Elijah and rain. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, verse 17. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. I don't have time to chase this too far, but there's a couple of things I want to pull out. One is this. A lot of times we see water as a picture of the Holy Spirit. And actually in Hebrews chapter 6, when it talks in that passage about uh, land that often drinks in the rain, some produces a crop that's useful, some produces thorns and thistles. In other words, the Hebrew writer is still dealing with the fact that there are some, and again, the Hebrew writer was dealing with the same thing James was dealing with. He was writing to Jewish Christians who had come out of Judaism, were suffering for their faith, and some were thinking about going back to Judaism. And he was saying, look, Jesus is better than Moses, he's better than the angels, why would you think about going back? And on top of that, if you go back, you weren't saved in the first place, and you're headed for hell. And in chapter 6, he talks about that. It's time for us to move on from the basic stuff. And then he makes this statement. He says, land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, either produces good stuff or bad stuff. And in the same way, in the context here, he's saying, when God pours out his spirit, how we respond to it will determine whether or not we're really saved or not. Oh, there will be some that spring up, like the thorny soil and the rocky soil in the parable of the soils. But in time... When trouble comes or the cares of this world and wealth come, they'll fall away or be choked because of it. And the only real evidence of salvation is long term down the road through trials. We're still here and producing fruit. Does that mean that there won't be days that we look like we're not going to make it? No, there'll be days that we look like Peter, even though he was already saved. When Jesus had to call him Simon to remind him, you're going to look like your old guy for a while. There are going to be times that we need a brother or sister to come alongside of us and bring us back. We never really lost our salvation, but we kind of got weak. And those who do this cover a multitude of sins. And he said Elijah was a man just like us, and he prayed that it wouldn't rain. 
and it didn't for three and a half years. Boy, I want to chase that. Everything in me wants to show how that's tied to the end times and the second half of the tribulation and the first half and the 360 days, and, or sorry, uh, just uh, 1,260 days and the 42 months and the times, times and a half a time. But we're going to chase that one. But let me just say this. He prayed and God withheld the rain. And then he prayed again and the rain fell. And he says in the context here, therefore, if you're one of these weak people and you're struggling and you've actually fallen into sin and because of that, things have happened. You confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed and strengthened. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. And then he says, God, by the way, um, Elijah's just like you and me. No, he's not. Elijah was a man. Of God. No, no, no. The Bible says he's a man just like you and me. So are you going to call God a liar? Or are you going to accept that Elijah was a man just like you and me? And when he prayed, the Holy Spirit was withheld, if you will. And when he prayed, it was removed, I mean, released. Doesn't the Bible talk about praying for one another? Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. God's, excuse me, God's power is released when we pray and ask God for things that he already wants to do. But in some reason, and for his own purposes, he wants us, even though he desires to do these things, to ask him. Folks, I'm going to challenge you as well. You got loved ones. You got children. You got grandchildren. And they fit into this category. You don't know if they're saved or not saved. You don't know if that prayer they prayed was real or the baptism that happened when they were a kid was real. But you kind of hope, but you don't know. I know what you can do. You call them up and say they need to be in church. No. Call them up and say you need to come listen to what Jim just did. No, no, no. Pray for them. They can't outrun your prayers. Pray that, that God would just bomb them with the Holy Spirit to the point that they have to make a decision. That if it's a no, they will make an absolute no. But if, it's, if that seed that was planted was real, and they truly are saved, that he who began the good work will finish it, pray, Lord, do whatever you got to do. Do whatever you got to do. Because too many of us say, Lord, um, I want you to save my Bobby, but be easy on him. No. Do you want him in heaven or do you want him in hell? Pray and say, Lord, do what you got to do. Let's put people in their path. If you want to use me, show me when to speak. Show me when not to speak. But the context of this passage is in the midst of the last days, we're going to have those who fall by the wayside and some can be brought back through those of us who care and know and pray. And I just want to encourage you with that. It's been a little bit of an interesting study for me, to be honest with you, as I began the book of James. I have been surprised as to how hard of a book it was. How harsh James was through a lot of this. You know why? Because we always read just the sections of James we liked. But when you break it all down and put it all in the full context, you see that he was writing to Christians in the midst of persecution. And he's saying, keep your eyes on the Lord. He'll accomplish his purposes if you're his. If you're not, you want to get that fixed. And we who are the brothers and sisters in Christ have a responsibility, the royal priesthood, to be led of the spirit to help each other in this process. Do we become everyone's God? No. But we point them to Him. 
and help them along that way. I love y'all. I can't wait to see you in September. And maybe hopefully we'll run into each other between now and then. But until then, thanks for coming.